the idea of being able to opt out is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, not voting is a form of protest to me. Yeah. It, it's either a protest from a place of apathy or a protest from a place of discomfort or disquiet with the system as a whole. So I think it's really important to acknowledge the ability to opt out or to factor it in or to recognize the scope of opting out and the size of opting out within the society as a measure of how discontent or apathetic or disempowered a society may be. I live unbanked off of cryptocurrency, and I use BitRefill extensively because it lets me pay with crypto at places that don't yet accept it directly. This one service, more than any other, helps me live on crypto. Pay your prepaid phone bill, or buy gift cards to thousands of major retailers around the world, all with cryptocurrency, including for exact amounts so you don't have to buy more gift credit than you need for a specific purchase. You can use BitRefill without an account, but if you get an account, you can earn rewards points, which translate to savings, and you can also hold a balance denominated in dollars or euros to protect yourself against market crashes. Go to bitrefill.com, click Create Account, and enter the referral code DCN, or follow the link in the description. Hey everyone, uh, I have the wonderful pleasure of once again speaking to the great, the greatest doc, Dr. Kapil Amarasinghe. How's it going, man? It's good to see you, Joel. Yeah, so it was just an allusion to your, uh, an allusion to your Twitter profile, which follows. Yeah, no, no, yeah, completely egotistical. I mean, a couple of years ago, but you know, smart ego. So fuck that. Yeah, might as well. I mean, you know, Hmm. as well believe in yourself. Uh, We were speaking not about medicine necessarily last time, but of governance and government and society societal structuring on a kind of creator mm. basis but basically talking about how current forms of representative democracy do not really work out and as anything any old system needs updating at some point we're just sort of brainstorming as if you know we're in this like almost like hackathon mode for coming up with a new world government sort of thing or ju- just throwing ideas out there and we went over all kinds of ways of how to, for example, make voting more efficient by making it like online and through a blockchain, how to prevent fraud in some ways, how to make the how to make votes more direct and less like representative, how to hold uh, officials more accountable, all that kind of stuff and dial in the technology. And, I, and kind of the cliffhanger we left on last time was that all works well to improve the system. There is a big complaint that a lot of people might have, which is that the system itself is not opt-in. We're born, we live in a society. Um, some people will even call, use the, the concept of the social contract, saying that you agreed to every egregious thing the government does to you just because you signed this invisible document at birth. By being born, you agree to everything that your government will do to you, sort of thing. That's a little bit of an oversimplification. But basically, we're going into how can we improve the opt-in quality of the entirety of the system or of each system. And obviously going into um, specifics because in some cases, some things are really hard. Some things are really easy to opt out. I'll just use a different service for this, just like with businesses. Other things, it's really hard to opt out because by do even if you do, you're in a physical location and 
you can't really live by slightly different rules than everyone else in some cases. So that's just the whole entire grandiose overview. Uh, any initial thoughts before we dive in? I mean, I agree with you. I think the idea of being able to opt out is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, not voting is a form of protest to me. Yeah. It's either a protest from a place of apathy or a protest from a place of discomfort or disquiet with the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to acknowledge the ability to opt out or to factor it in or to recognize the scope of opting out and the size of opting out within the society as a measure of how discontent or apathetic or disempowered a society mm -hmm. may be. And I think that's very important to me. You know, if you look at county council votes in the UK, mm, average 35% participation rates, 40. You know, the Brexit mm -hmm. vote got 70 because that was a singular big issue. But when you look at more localized politics, which actually are more important on a day-to-day -day level for so many people, you know, when you've got participation rates that are sub 50%, that mm -hmm. to me is concerning because it says, why are people not engaged? Why are people not empowered? Why do people maybe not necessarily know about the importance of these things or necessarily have the time or the focus or the energy to do so or feel like it would make a difference? And I think that is so key to good democracy is engagement and participation. Yeah, and it's funny because I've seen a lot of people in the space, in you know the thought space here, focus on that number of the participation levels are low we need to get participation levels up but i kind of view participation levels not as the disease but the symptom the symptom of a mm. bad disease and of course you have some places i again don't don't fact check me on this because i didn't do my research but i hear hear tell that places like australia may even fine you for not voting and so they have almost a an extremely high participation rate but that's not really you just put a, a bandage over the you know you have a gaping wound and you just put a little bit of like tape on top of it and it's still it's not disinfected it's not properly treated there's it's still there so there's a I think, big systemic yeah. disease sorry there is a huge mm -hmm. systemic disease i completely agree with you on this sorry yeah and let me on a pers personally i do not believe low participation to be a necessarily a problem as i said and not even a system like a not even a um, symptom of a problem because apathy is not always a bad thing necessarily the problem or, or my problem at least is when people who don't vote or who don't participate are subjected to the whims of those who do and are not happy about that so, for example, if everyone votes on certain things, of course, good citizens or whatever should participate. They should be out there. They should feel like they have a voice. And sometimes um, the, the ability to just abdicate on a positive way, I don't think is necessarily a, a problem. Like, for example, let's just say we have 40, 50 percent participation, which is, you know, let's just say that's pretty high. And then the other half just says, like, I can't be bought. I trust what everyone else is doing. Like, you know, I mean, be. I think it's good for people to make up their own minds and not just abdicate. That's kind of how we got into the position we got into a lot of cases. But the bad part, that's not necessarily bad. The bad part is when they do not participate and they are subjected to people who do 
and they're unhappy about it. And on another side, another side, if they participate, if they do participate, but they're also subjected to other people's whims and are not happy about it. Either way, it's just like the not happy about it part seems to be the the you know being subjected to something you're not happy with seems to be like kind of the un, the underlying issue. No, I, I completely appreciate that. If everything is going smoothly and okay for you, then the incentives to participate and engage with a system, they may not necessarily be there because if everything's going great for you, well, you know, as long mm -hmm. as it continues to go great, I completely understand that side two things. Yeah. And as you said, it's when things aren't going great. And to me, it's almost like within what you've said, it's the identification options of proposals like how are we getting the information about proposed changes out there to the majority of people so that maybe when a proposal comes along it's like okay let's say i'm the most apathetic voter on earth and it's like nothing changes me but all of a sudden i'm ignoring everything one day this one rule this one thing comes across that i absolutely hate and feel passionate about and mm. want to be engaged in but because i'm not aware of it it kind of slips by me and suddenly it goes through and I'm like, oh my God, what has happened here? Mm. That's a really important, you know, so we need a system that kind of flags these things up or makes it, you know, at least more accessible, or I guess more apparent to people of what, mm. of the process that's going on. Yeah. And there's another thing I was thinking of with this whole process of um, vote thresholds, not just like participation thresholds, not just vote percentage thresholds. So for example, in some, a, a simple majority is what a lot of votes take. There's some kinds of laws and some kinds of systems that require like a super majority, like a two thirds vote, for example. But there's also the concept of what about requiring a certain threshold of any participation in order to work. And something that I, I've thought of this there's like in, for example, American politics, of which I'm more familiar, there's a very low voter participation in national elections. I believe last one might have been a little bit of an uptick for, you know, various reasons. But in 2016, I believe it was like almost historic lows of just no one cared for either of the people running. And uh, something that, of course, another thing I have a lot more experience with, with uh, decentralized governance in like a cryptocurrency setting uh, the way the dash De decentralized autonomous organization works which as i've said before i believe is the f one of the first or if not the first major successful one and therefore kind of you know basic is any proposal budget proposal that passes before a network has to have a net 10 percent vote so if there's 5,000 nodes you have to have 500 people vote yes and zero vote no. Or hmm. then if you want to get, you know, like let's just say 200 votes don't like you, then you have to have seven minimum of 700. But we're still talking about 700 plus 200. Like still talking about 900 people participating out of a, or 900 units out of 5,000 units potentially. But so what happens if you have 485 notes just absolutely love your idea and are in on it but no one disagrees but just no one cares enough to vote then you can't get funded at all because you haven't met that minimum participation threshold 
And so it kind of keeps like thing it kind of is like an apathy filter. And so um, I don't necessarily know if that kind of threshold is even, you know, um, kind of worthwhile if that's the the right thing. But I, I do kind of like the idea of that. So, for example, going back to the presidential election in the U.S. of 2016 and I with those levels of participation, there shouldn't have been a president at all in my view right why do we have like no one really everyone hates these guys nah i don't want to do it can you clarify what were the levels of participation in that election i would probably have to just you know look it up live on air but i probably probably wouldn't do that right now but it was i'm pretty it was pretty low but it's it because the conceptual thing for you know argument's sake if it's you know if it's extremely low like let's just say 10 percent of voters or something end up voting I, that's not really a, a conclusion that then the rest of the people should have to deal with, in my view. I don't know what you think about that with the participation. I mean, I almost feel like there should just be like a don't care option mm-hmm. on there. And if you want to have that minimum threshold of, well, I just, so to get my head around the dash model, which I actually find uh-huh. really interesting, you know, yeah. if you're saying it's like a 5% threshold either way. Yeah, the 10, 10%. So you, sorry 10 percent, and so yeah. you you know 5500 would have to vote no even if 5000 said yes for the threshold to pass mm-hmm. or 5500 would have to vote yes is that right well so let's just up the numbers a little bit so say out of 5000 voters if something gets a thousand yes votes and it gets 501 no votes it doesn't pass even though it's a two to one in favor of but just out of the net percentage and so because it has to be at least 500 yes 10 percent and zero mm-hmm. no but then it's more contested so let's just say let's just assume high voter participation like two like let's just say 3,000 votes vote 3,000 out of 5,000 and then you have um, out of that, you got, um, let's just say, I'm trying to, trying to do the my, math was never my strong suit. Um, so let's just I... say you had um, 2,000 yes and 1,000 no. Yeah. So that's a net thousand, that's a, like a net thousand votes that passes because the minimum is 500. But mm-hmm. what if you had it the other way around? What if you had a little bit closer, like 15 yes and no, then, and then the gap shrinks a little bit. Right, yeah. And then then it, then it becomes a little bit more contested. But like at the very bottom of things, just from participation levels, it, it you need a certain minimum participation to make this, this thing a reality. And, it, and if people mm-hmm. just aren't, if there's too much apathy, you don't get, you don't get your solution. You, you don't get a resolution at that point. You just, just it's a mistrust. It doesn't go through at all. Yeah. So there we go. So I think that's really interesting because it kind of, because you've got an incentive structure in place mm-hmm. to bring people who wouldn't necessarily vote to the table. What about second round voting? Is that kind of a thing? That could that be done. Is, that is, well, for the dash model, that's not a thing because it, it's a basic system. Second round voting mm-hmm. might be nice. Um, I 
I haven't thought too much about second round voting because, you know, the problems with the first round voting, there's already so many of those to solve ahead of time. But uh, second round, the problem, and this comes from like a, a user experience standpoint, it is such a pain in the backside to vote to begin with for just anyone. Just yeah. It's not, not the process of clicking a button somewhere or going physically into a polling location or writing something down. It's just the, po the process of caring all up until that point, put it in, it's done. And then you like, get your hopes up or you don't. And then like, okay, well, close enough, but it didn't work. Uh, I, I would, um, I like the idea of a second round voting in a case where, um, in a case, so for example, between to pick between three candidates maybe let, let's say there's three mm -hmm. options and then the first and the top two because then you can argue about vote splitting i do like that because i believe that in these kinds of systems where i like for example i believe that the top two presidential candidates in the u.s at least for memory living and probably dead memory as well has always been it's not been people's first choices who they've ended up voting for in the end yeah because they've had a whole host of people in like primary runoffs and things and then they go kind of vote for it and then the big argument in in i know it's a lot different in for example europe it you know, pretty much let's say a lot of the world where you have a, a truly multi-party system that then later forms coalitions and things in the u.s system it's almost purely a two-party system and there are a dozen parties i think it's something like that but there's two major parties and one minor party and one extremely insignificant party and then there's like the rest that is like five people each something like that so a lot of times the thing that keeps the third party voter from voting is let is they don't want one of the two major people to win and so they they don't want to take a risk because they vote for their their secondary candidate and then it just doesn't it then it just doesn't work out it's wasting their vote as they call it and so the problem is is too many people are afraid of wasting their vote they don't vote the way they want it and so what so happens yes i was going to say funnily enough the exact same system actually happens in the uk mm -hmm. so you've basically got five parties and when it comes mm -hmm. to national elections you just pick one mm -hmm. um and you don't get a second or a third preference rank mm -hmm. uh, and even though coalitions can form if there's kind of like a deadlock um there's a lot of people you know for, for instance it, for most people who have to come to vote it's like actually it's the same scenario you know we intrinsically realize there's basically two major players and most of uh, i'm not going to say most of us but a number of us may not like either of those two but we just naturally go well if we vote for the, any of the other three waste of a vote it, it works out the same and if you're going to talk about a ranking system where it's like first choice second choice third choice and then it kind of collates all of that and then ranks and strike you know based on if you have runoffs basically based on first second and third choice i think that would work better for a lot of people there are certainly you know some of my friends have advocated for this and i think it's a good idea yeah uh, how that structured would be uh what I would like to see is tabulate the second and third, the second choice 
after the the first vote has been concluded just because that that's a more fresher context the problem hmm. is getting people to go out and vote twice to get people to care twice and that's so i'm not quite decided on which either one would be better but as far as like the runoff thing um i would definitely like to see that kind of happen because let's just say um there were in 20 2020 right there were let's just say three major options in the u.s for president there was obviously orange man bad everyone knows that guy and then there was the current sitting president uh may he rest in peace i mean i don't know if he's dead yet who knows but close to it so basically two very bad options and i know a lot of people from just like my personal life on both sides i was shocked at how many on both sides voted for either of those based purely on we can't let the other guy win it was the more it is the the more um i would say shrewd or something the more i feel like spiteful yeah it was definitely uh, one of the more spiteful elections in in memory at all and then there was a third candidate joe jorgensen for the libertarian party it was a nice lady with some good ideas but wasn't particularly inspiring but more importantly wasn't in the conversation because why would you vote for her if you could you know ruin the country because the other guy wins but so what if everyone could just say you know what i want to vote for that one and then okay you don't have enough for the main thing and then your second pick is well i want that one to win and so at that point you'd have a lot of people more brave in selecting their things so that's a great way of, of solving a lot that's a good way of approaching the apathy problem uh i personally also like the idea of um for example thresholds for um for example like thresholds based on the magnitude of the vote so for example the higher amount of money you want to spend the more fundamental you want to change a law regulation or something like that the, the bigger the choice the higher of a percentage of a participation threshold you'd have to have. So you wouldn't just have to get the majority of like a 10%. You have to get majority of a 20% or the majority or a super majority of a 30% or something. Just so it's the bigger things really have to be, you know, it's like, well, if someone says, Oh, I vote to change, you know, this local ordinance here that does like something or other, like the Christmas lights go up a week earlier or something in the town. It's like, okay, well, if you lose that vote, it doesn't change. But if it just says, I vote that now it is illegal to do this, to do something very large, then all of a sudden that should be kind of a a higher threshold to do that. And so, like, for example, the the representative, right, the leader of the free world, so to speak, as it's been penned, that should require a very high threshold. And I don't just believe it should be like a it should it probably should be like a i won't say super majority but it should be more than should be like a 40 60 vote instead of like a 51 49 vote and it should be high participation otherwise it just doesn't work you can't have that person representing so many people chanting not my president so to speak yeah i mean it's actually really interesting you say this so like with the part with the project that I'm an advisor to and, and very much involved with Particle, 
if you want to have mm. protocol level changes, you pretty much need a two thirds participation. Whereas actually, if it's anything that's not protocol related, it's the threshold is much lower. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's funding a little community project or an area development. So for me, I, I completely agree. It's like big decisions should have big rates of participation because the consequences, you know, from a perceptual level, actually and in real world terms, you know, the immediate impact is much more palpable. And I, I think, he, I, I don't know, I would love to get contrarian views on this. And mm -hmm. for me to adopt a contrarian view would be a complete flipping of my mindset. But logically, you know, intuitively, not logically, intuitively to me, that's a very reasonable proposal. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know yeah. uh, I certainly wouldn't want to see, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a something even almost like an edge case scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll talk from a healthcare perspective. Let's completely sh shut down this hospital that serves a demographic mm -hmm. of 10, you know, well, let's say 100,000 or several hundred thousand people. Let's just shut it down. And to save the money, you probably want a very high participation rate within that community to get that threshold. Mm, Whereas yeah. actually, if it just shut down with a low rate of participation, even at a national level, and then that draws into the concept of national versus local mm. politics, as it were, you know, all right, if the majority of the nation is voting, yeah, let's shut down that hospital. But the several hundred thousand within that locality, the majority of them are saying, no, let's save it. Actually, what's the fair outcome here? And I, I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting question. Yeah. And now on another level, when we're talking about base participation and not just how do we get people to participate, but do they need to participate in the system at all? When mm. we go to that level. One thing I've noticed from a Politics is very, you know, contentious. It just is. And in my view, one of the reasons for that is because, it, first off, it's fighting over a zero-sum game of, like, let, let's fight over... There's a static amount of control, power, money, things, and we're fighting over who gets to control that. But also, you're fighting to get your way, and if you don't get your way, you lose. Like, you lose out on things. Whereas if you, let's just say you're going out to see a film with some friends and then, oh, I want to vote for this one. I want to vote for this one. And then they all vote. And then the one that gets picked that you don't want, uh, you can just say, I'd rather go home, <laughs> right? The ability, it just makes it so much, it lowers the stakes so much. And mm -hmm. like if your friends vote and make you watch something awful and you would really hate them for that. You'd fight with them all the time. You'd form coalitions. You'd like do scorchers for like, hey, you know, he hits his wife at home. He shouldn't trust what he said. Like, <laughs> you're just making up crazy things. To, it just, it causes a lot of nasty bitterness. And from my own personal life, I see a lot of crazy headlines of bad things being done in other parts of the world. For example, Australia, right? Australia, and not to get overly political right now, but I, there's some crazy things going on right now. It's it's a practical police state right now. Oh and, yeah, no, I I'm very aware of the laws that yes. have been introduced there from uh, from a data protection point of view. That that drives me nuts. I wouldn't travel to that country out of protest. Yeah, um, I so, mean the the potential to sorry the yeah, potential to corruption on. there is huge, and it drives yeah. me nuts. In just. 
for example, like I think that is horrendous, but I don't care too much. And this is you know where apathy comes comes in. I do care on like a human level what people are forced to to live under over there, but I don't have to deal with it because I live here. Mm. And therefore, and this is where it, it's something where it, in, there's other cases where there might be something where people say, for example, you know what? In this town in rural Alabama, it's the law that all houses on this block have to be painted white. That's it. They all have to be white. And you can only drive an electric vehicle in this town. I disagree with those, both of those. I I do appreciate white houses, but I don't think they should be required. And I really, I don't have an electric vehicle and don't, don't mind getting one, but I would not want to be forced to do that to live there. But it doesn't affect me, so I don't really care. And so if there's people who do really like that, they should be able to do, to impose that on each other consensually. But like, if this happened in my neighborhood, I would be upset. If if all of a sudden they're like, you know what, this car that you like, you know, you can't drive that anymore because of, you know, new neighborhood regulations, I'd be very upset. And so because of all that, let's go to go to the, the participation angle. So first off, I don't believe in that a one size fits all strategy works necessarily. Like I do not believe that government should just be one thing. And you're subjected to this whole list of things, and that's it. There should probably be different associations that govern different parts of your existence. And you can have, and in some of these, you could have free choice. So, like, as, as far as switching, not just voting within a system, but switching systems entirely. So, first off, do you disagree with that basic premise of being able to choose different providers of? I guess, governmental services on certain levels. And then if you do not disagree, then which le- which levels do you think are more appropriate for that level of choice? So I, I don't disagree, but there's a nuance to this. Um, of and I actually, I covered this in a talk that I recorded less than an hour ago. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, um, so in the UK... I'll put the setting to you. Uh, if you look at party politics, the Conservative Party believes in mm-hmm. privatization of services, including public services. Mm-hmm. And their underlying belief is that by having a number of different service providers, they will be competing with each other. Uh, and that will essentially create the greatest amount of efficiency, um, mm-hmm. which will then mean, you know, because consumers can choose to opt into one as opposed to another that's great because they'll eventually the system will work itself out and everyone will get the best deal. Now for certain services, that's actually worked out great. And for certain services, Mm -hmm. it's worked out terribly. Um, A good example for service where it's worked out great up to now is in the energy sector. So you had about 50, 60 different energy companies, all private, And me, as a resident in a household, I could contract any of them to be my electricity supplier. And because of this, you had competition for best price, best service, and you actually had a very competitive environment where you could get essentially the lowest possible price of electricity. 
Now, unfortunately, what's happened is because the price of electricity, of wholesale electricity has gone up, a lot of these providers have gone bust due to the nature in which their uh, government contracts, what their contracts are formed. Um, uh, and the inevitable result of this is actually the price of, uh, of it will eventually be that there will be a significant rise in the cost of electricity. But my, my point being in that system, that's an example of allowing for that or ignoring that outside factor. Actually, for a number of years, that system worked really well. Uh, a different service where it didn't work very well at all, from my point of view, is the train service. Mm -hmm. So they privatized railways. So even though the actual railway lines are owned by a very small handful of people, you've got a lot of train companies that effectively bid for routes in regions mm -hmm. and have control over certain regions. So it's not like, okay, you can, if, if I wanted to do a train journey from where I live to London, I potentially have three different providers. Um, but it actually, because it's trains, you don't, mm -hmm. you can't have 20 different companies operating the same journey line. It's just not practical or efficient. And because you've got so many different organizations operating on essentially the same unified rail network, mm -hmm. actually the overall cost of buying train tickets has gone up massively because there's so much bureaucratic burden. You can't run like a saver or discount system. So for instance, if I got a, a saver ticket for a particular rail line, it would allow me to get from maybe here to London or here to like some other, to Birmingham, you know, it's a particular city in the UK, but that same saver service, that, that, that discount scheme, it wouldn't apply if I wanted to go to Glasgow or to Wales or other parts of the UK. So it's not universal. So actually, it doesn't always produce the efficiencies that you think it would. And sometimes it creates additional expenses. There is nuance to that. Um, in terms of private providers, what I was talking about in the talk prior to your one, mm -hmm. um, and it's a fairly radical idea, but I believe it would actually allow you to do away with the concept of traditional governance, governments as we know it, yeah. in the sense of governments as separate from corporations. Because if you're having a choice of service providers, you're essentially saying, I am allowing myself, okay, I want to have a choice of private service providers. And, mm -hmm. and let's pick a let let's pick a service like police. Mm -hmm. So say there's like, you know, in my locale, there's like five or six different private security firms. And I can just pick any one of them. And if there's ever a problem. I call that specific provider and they mm -hmm. will come and provide a service to me. And actually, I think that's great. But then the catch is what if they're not available? What if they go bust or bankrupt? Mm -hmm. uh, and what if they change their own internal policies to not necessarily give me the kind of coverage that I desire? There's always mm -hmm. the option to, in that last scenario there's always the option to kind of opt out and change provider but then at what cost and what are the terms of their contracts is there a penalty to me so there's like lots of nuances here yeah well so let, let's hit some uh, just the i believe the idea that you can pick your providers is 
fundamentally a huge overhaul. And so let's just give an example that, that is a little bit closer is education in that and oddly enough, like the, the U S has one of the, I would say poorer education, public education systems in the world, I would say, or not in the world, but as far as, you know, leading developed countries. And so, for example, one thing that is very strange that, you know, I'm surprised there's been a lot of pushback on amongst advocates of public education has been closed enrollment where you have a school based on your geography. And so, for example, the local school is the one your children have to go to. And you can't, if the next, the one in the next town over is better, you cannot send your children to that one. It's just not allowed. Whereas, for example, in my understanding in Sweden, you could have that choice to where any public school around you that you choose to go to, you can enroll in any, it's called open enrollment. So that's, that's already one thing. There is a local law that's passed specifically in New Hampshire called the Education Freedom Account, which basically gives you a portion of the state budget that would be spent on education, and then you can spend it on ho however you want. So, for example, the average New Hampshire public school spends about $16,000 per student uh, to educate them in the public system. This system would take... 5,000 of that, so about a third of it, and just give it directly to the family so that then they can spend it on private school tuition or homeschool or whatever else they want to do. And then with some very, with a very small list of conditions, but basically, and that program is all, it's it, infancy, it was just passed recently, but already it's had, I think like 500 times the number of expected applicants have already signed up because it's been so popular with people looking for that choice so like education choice is one of those things where even if you say okay well we should all pay something for education we should be able to choose it's pretty easy to just choose and it's not something that for example if i choose one option you choose a different one it's not necessarily like there's a conflict between us because we pick different options now in the same thing I like the uh, the security provider slash policing idea because there that's where a lot of the nuance hits. Is um, I like the idea of being able to call the cops that I like, right? Not those ones. I don't like these ones better. I like that idea, and at the same time, if I live in a neighborhood that is that the people are paying the premium service for the premium policing. Everyone has it, and I'm the one poor person in the, in the neighborhood, and I want to have the cheap option. Uh, obviously, I do get an inferior service on a personal level, but the odd, but I get a lot of positive externalities from from that. And so, in that case, there might have to be either some sort of an agreement between the services, whereas uh, coverage. But then we start getting into like gang gang war style, um, like concepts where you're like so, okay, so, yes sorry to interrupt funnily enough that uh -huh. kind of agreement between the services exists in our energy sector so mm -hmm. at the minute if one energy firm goes bust there's like an mm -hmm. agreement in place that the the customers will automatically transfer to a stronger provider mm -hmm. yeah or imagine this where you say you're in a neighborhood you have the poor provider if you, in order to have that, in order for them to provide coverage to your area, it's an area that is 
majority controlled by the other provider, then that provider has to pay a fee to serve as a customer in other territory. And because of that, then they have to pass that charge up to off to the consumer. So maybe, you know, it's still probably the cheaper option, but it's just not as cheap because it's in a different like territory. But, the, you know, we're getting like gang territory kind of stuff. Again, the, that's sort of a free market for the ga- the gang system is sort of a free market for policing in the very ugliest sense of the of the. I mean, the it term. encourages monopolization potentially of regions, yeah. which I, I completely understand where, you, where you're mm-hmm. coming from. Or, I, I, imagine there are if if things are not regional coverage at all like for example like let's say on another case you hire two firms if you live in a neighborhood if you buy a house in this neighborhood you have no choice but to pay the average security the the detail run by the neighborhood association everyone gets together and buy a a majority vote or super majority but whatever it is they vote to get together and they vote who's going to be the provider that polices the neighborhood and then you just have someone who's so if you have a house in the neighborhood and you can obviously vote but if you don't vote you're still sort of stuck with the same person who patrols and provides basic security services but if you want to have like the personal security the person you call when there's an emergency not just someone who like checks out the neighborhood and makes sure everything looks fine then that's something you'd have a choice on is whereas and then there is no necessary overlap between those it's just like you're already paying the the basic neighborhood security things but as far as emergency services which is not what the first one is then the emergency services provider is a different one and then you can have free you know whoever if they operate in that region then you can do that then that kind of solves because there's kind of two natures there's the do they service you specifically or you know do they service a, do they just service the geography and there can be those two things at the same time and so you kind of you have a a geographically locked choice on one but you have a freer choice on the other not completely freer because obviously if they don't operate in your physical area you kind of have fewer options but you still would have an option whereas you have to sort of pick one if you live in the neighborhood for just the basic neighborhood patrol hmm. I think it comes down to then what you define the respective frameworks for that mm-hmm. kind of basic emergency service and then the extra services as, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's interesting because it almost feeds into the the concept of private healthcare. So in the UK, like emergency and outpatient healthcare is free. My understanding is that emergency mm-hmm. care is, is, it's less costly or quite subsidized, whereas ongoing kind of outpatient care, the more complex stuff, that falls in a certain other framework that's certainly private and subject to insurance. Is that right? Oh, it's hard. It's hard to really answer that in a concrete way because the US health system is so horrendously complicated and corrupt. And it's funny on a completely side note to that. On that, it's put to it's extremely regulated so you can't just kind of do what you want but because everything's been forced through insurance insurance has created an artificial bidding war for higher prices so usually if you get a bill it'll be astronomical and then either your insurance company will cover it or they'll negotiate it down to like what the market price is and then or then it's actually a thing where you get an astronomical bill 
and you can actually negotiate down your bill to a more reasonable one. It's like a, like a haggling it down, which is I think is completely insane. But that's that comes from a lot of cases where you have a fascist system, which fascism being the combination of public and private, the public-private alliance sort of system, can come out sometimes worse than a purely, you know, government does everything solution, which I already do not think is an ideal solution. But sometimes it gets actually worse when you cut when you make it into a fascist system. So going back to your original proposal about the difference mm-hmm. between the emergency framework and an enhanced, actually, mm-hmm. just I thought this is an interesting caveat. If you're a non-resident in the non-resident in the UK and you come mm-hmm. to the UK, interestingly enough, if you go to an emergency department, any all primary care in the UK, even if you're non-resident, is free, mm-hmm. more or less. So if you go to a GP practice, like family practice, or an emergency department, or certain types of clinics like sexual health or torture mm-hmm. or asylum, things like that, that stuff's free. It's the minute that you need that kind of almost enhanced service for ongoing chronic issues where if you need to be admitted to a hospital or you need ongoing outpatient medical treatment for chronic conditions, that stuff, if you're not resident, you get charged for. And that's, that's almost kind of reflective of what you've said with this sort of home security setup of these kind of base emergency services versus the, then the enhanced. And I I think it's defining the frameworks of provision Mm -hmm there that are really important because there's there's a huge um there's a huge ethical and moral aspect there's an empathy i feel there's an aspect Mm -hmm. of this that's extremely driven by empathy how much you care Mm -hmm. for other people and i think society as a whole operates you know you get the standard deviation i think there's a mean of empathy if you took an average of people you know hundred or a thousand people and then that idea of what's acceptable. So I, I completely agree with you. You can have like, you know, if you had a sufficiently large population uh, part, and this is the interesting thing because it's all mm-hmm. demographic related, but if you had a sufficiently large and diverse and spread out population, they probably converge on a mean as to what that definition of an emergency service was. But mm-hmm. then actually, if you try and... Uh, narrow or maybe not narrow is the wrong word focus onto specific geographical regions or specific demographics or specific populations you might find that the the divergences and deviances are much more represented within that Mm -hmm. framework so it's how you achieve consensus which i think is Uh, one thing that i think is interesting um i like to see different models today because they they sort of um kind of reflect of what they could otherwise be uh, a lot of local services i would say a lot like a high percentage but relative to the rest of the world a high percentage are opt-in and fee-based here in this region specifically new hampshire for example and for example there's a lot of highways that are toll roads where you pay like a dollar or two to like go down on, on the highway and it, so for people who don't want to pay with that you can and i frequently opt out like if i'm not in a hurry I take the back roads and I, you know, adds 10 minutes to my drive. I don't have to pay extra. And so it works out better. And so the funny thing on that is there's a lot of, you know, cities maintain certain roads, um, certain businesses maintain others, but you see a lot of, especially 
wealthy people with large houses who'd have dirt roads out to their house. They're not paved at all just because it's not done by the government. And they're just like, nah, I'm not going to pave it. You know, I don't need a lot of people coming down my road anyways. And it's, it's happened quite a few times where I've been beyond a toll road and I've gotten through for free because the car ahead of me paid the, the, the next paid it forward for the next few behind them. And so you, you will see that behavior happening where people are like, I'll pay, I'll voluntarily pay for someone's public service behind me. And then the same thing kind of happens in a, like state parks, for example, are mm-hmm. fee or donation based. Like for example, if you want to go to, hiking up some mountain and some curated trails that they need some, they need some work to maintain and they'll have like a fee there. And then sometimes you'll have someone will pay, pay for other people to do that. Or some people will donate in excess of their fees. So sometimes a lot of times there's not even an attendant. They're just a box and says, please throw in some money here to go on the, on the trail. And then it's kind of an honor system. And you can imagine the government working on a paid honor system, but and then sometimes people donate extra because they know like the people that maintain the, the, the government employees who maintain that and they put in some extra. And so that's kind of an interesting way of seeing a more, uh, kind of, I guess a more dynamic, um, a more flexible kind of way rather than just the government takes your money and does what it wants with it. Kind of a, a solution. Yeah, I, I see this a lot in the UK as well. I mean, if you go to the British Museum, there's just a box and you can donate. And you know that the British Museum is maintained by wealthy donors. Actually, there's a lot of amazing sort of open air parks in the UK that are just maintained by the National Trust, which is a ta- charity. Mm-hmm. If you look at the UK as a whole, there are so many services and systems that are fundamentally driven by charities. And that actually extends into the world of healthcare as well. So, um, you know, a lot of NHS structures, if you, if you look at the history of medicine, you know, a lot of the early hospitals were kind of built on as charitable foundations, dependent on donations from local communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they kind of emerged and the best providers of care kind of became the focal points of communities and then emerged as like the beacons. And then they got the government involvement. It's interesting. I, I, I kind of pulled, left at the word consensus, but... The idea of consensus is so important to the functioning of so many of these services at every level. You need mm-hmm. participation and engagement. And no matter what mechanism there is, ultimately the mechanism that leaves people most empowered, um, I almost feel like most at the beneficiary or recipient of the good services or products of, of whatever they choose to support, that those are the systems that tend to survive. Uh, and you'll see a diverse range of mechanisms and governance systems evolve uh, to kind of almost provide those space services. That's why we've got the world that we live in today. There are a number of different governance systems in place and they all work to a certain extent Mm -hmm. uh, to do certain things. And they work to within certain tolerances of what people there in those localities will accept. I don't want to comment too much on the Australian system. Of course. Suffice to say, I think that slipped through as a result of ignorance. I think if people were less ignorant of the consequences of of those laws, uh, and if they were more aware of the manner in which they'd been passed, there would have probably been more participation and uproar, or perhaps it speaks to something cultural. uh, And going back to what we said about apathy, if everything is running smoothly 
and fine. What is the point of questioning anything at all? Mm -hmm. um, I know this. Sorry if I'm going on a bit, but you know, yeah. I'm the I I spent a good year as the teaching coordinator for the department my hospital, and everything ran fine. Um, and one of those weird things is the more smoothly things run, the less people just say, yeah, everything's going great. Like they just put more and more. I'm not saying they put the burden onto you, yeah. but they just expect you to get on with things. And you can kind of rely on them to give you stuff if you go, yeah, I need this. The guys need mm -hmm. you to do this. They will always bounce and come. But ultimately people will leave the thinking to you. And that's weird because you want people, especially the system that I work in and the training program that I work in, you want people to be actively engaged and participating to help develop themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're almost doing too good a job, they don't necessarily do so. And that's kind of, that's kind of worrying if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. So, um, this is an interesting, well, really quick. I remember a few months ago, I was somehow falling down a Wikipedia hole and I ended up looking onto enclave nations and it's pretty, it's pretty crazy how we have this idea of what a nation should be like. And I'm sure this is a lot easier for Europeans to, um, wrap their heads around and things like like Liechtenstein, for example, and other countries that are completely enclaved by another country or by, or that are, you know, joined by other ones. And it's interesting to see how people say, well, it's, there's a lot of arrangements between some of these countries and, you know, they're the larger country. They're a completely independent country. But a lot of times, a lot of the services, they just sort of have an arrangement with the other country that, yeah, you can use my thing, I can use yours. So, for example, let's just say, um, just pick a random town in or city in the, let's just say the city of Leeds decides to secede and become its own country. And so it's the, you know, United Republic of Leeds from now on. And so everyone there is issued a Leeds passport or whatever. And there's still a whole lot of things that, just have no um, no overlap that have a lot of overlap with the surrounding UK government. But so it's like, well, how do you get post and what about energy? What about this? What about that? And I'm sure it would be shockingly easy to have like an amicable arrangement to just say, well, yeah, we'll let you use our this either sometimes in exchange for something, sometimes just for free is like, it doesn't cost us too much extra to give you service to here, even though you're a different country. And then for example, if you want to travel somewhere and your passport allows you free, your Leeds passport allows you free travel around the UK, for example, they just have an arrangement. So yeah, it's basically the same thing. And so you can come and go as you please. And you get something like that that could, potentially work out pretty well. And I would love to, to see more ex experiments of like micro nations that kind of do that. But let me just sort of finish my thought on this entire thing with an imagination of forming a sovereign town of some sort of first of the way it would, it could work pretty well. So and it, it, now we're, we're taking it back to the technological level where 
you know, more cutting edge tech in, in this case. So let's just say there's a town of a few thousand people. You decide to form an entirely independent whatever in. And the first thing is anything that's possible, I would say, like any anything that's possible, I would make it a fee-based sort of a model where, oh, if you want to use this, you pay a fee. You want to use that, pay a fee. And because by using decentralized digital currencies for, for this kind of thing, it makes it a lot more efficient to just tap a button every time you go do this, tap a button every time you go do that. And or have some sort of automatic setup so that some like NFC setup, we just bing, bing, bing. And like, so it's not a huge burden to do each microtransaction of things that you do. And on the other hand, I think it'd be good for a everyone who buys, everyone who lives in this town who pays a certain amount, and I, would, I guess taxes, let's use that word, even though it's probably not entirely appropriate they get issued a certain amount of governance tokens in return. And they can, there's like a minimum, like in order to be part of this, here's a minimum, but you can buy more if you want, right? And so it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily that, so the rate you get is more expensive for the extra stuff. So like everyone gets a base amount of tokens for, their base participation. If you want to buy, if you want to buy double the votes, it costs three times as much, for example. So it, it sort of prevents, it gives people who just want to participate in the system a discount over people who want to buy their way into influence. And that's what the state primarily, or the, the system primarily runs off of, is token sales, is so to speak. It's like every year. It's almost there's an exponential gradient. So the more power you want, the more the, more you, the exponential more rate in. and rise, it just goes really high up. Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, let's just say there's one person who has half the governance tokens. It's literally because he's paying for everything. And what he's deciding is like who he's paying for the result of his decisions mostly. And you can, of course, sell your governance tokens if you want. But the governance tokens... Uh, are all are they i guess they rot over time so to speak so it's not like every year you get issued new ones the old tokens the supply drops by half every year let's say and so long-term members have a higher voice but it's still with a recency bias right so that the more recent your contribution the more you have but if you've been there for 10 years you have this big supply of tokens that is like it's diminishing over time because it's like, how recent are you? But you still get a little bit of a seniority bonus based on this token system. I'm sure there's token systems like that already out there in the cryptoverse somewhere. And so that's just how you genuinely, generally run and vote for things like, but it's more like, do we build this road here or who are we contracting with for that protection? As far as like rights and laws and stuff, like that would have to be a completely separate thing. So otherwise you could just say, I want to, illegalize marijuana in this state <laughs> i'm just gonna buy everything out and just take away everyone's weed that would be a little little challenging so i said go ahead real quick i have, a, I have another layer layer to this but then go ahead no i i actually wanted to add another different idea into that because i find it interesting because you're essentially contracting out mm -hmm. to private services yeah um and this is my complaint about private services in terms of their structure is that mm -hmm. 
this is the, the point I'm going to raise. If you look at a number of corporations, they are they have shareholders. Um, and you can have a number of corporations where the shares, 100% of the shares or the vast, vast majority of shares aren't actually held by people who work for the company. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ideas that I kind of believe in, I, I really like your idea, by the way. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's quite good. But where I feel it's almost complementary to hiring mm -hmm. out into the private sector is if you had almost yeah. a global constitutional amendment that existed that said any corporation that exists 50 percent of shares should be held by employees of the company because mm -hmm. you kind of my my, un, my underlying argument is with this is if 50 percent of employees hold shares in that corporation at any given time they voting shares by the way they have the ability to vote out board members that may not be necessarily representing their own interests, but because they're shareholders in the company, they need to ensure optimal efficiency and functioning of that company to maintain good mm -hmm. profit thresholds so that they're successful. Because if that company is not successful because they're making the wrong decisions, then they'll go bust. Their shares will be worth nothing. So to me, it, it's almost like if you're going to have a system whereby people can choose any number of private service providers, you'd want to make sure those private corporations, their employees have a significant say uh, or significant ownership of mm -hmm. the company. I, I'm a believer in cooperative models. And I always set the 50% threshold because I believe 50% of shares, from my point of view, should be privately held to rake in the benefits of capitalism, which is speculation on the growth of companies. That, yes, but this it, is just, this is my personal view. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not a bit There's another fun wrinkle to this whole thing we could add, which is of course, NFTs. And obviously if we're talking the small town thing, this is actually a funny story like how ridiculously small town this glorious state of new hampshire is is sometimes funny to me every year i believe the state of new hampshire sells a branded whiskey in like a in like a bottle that looks like something decorative and it's not the best like no one buys it for that but the proceeds from that go to fund the hall of flags which is a in the the state capital it's a a, a dis historical display and so the government sells whiskey in these commemorative bottles to fund that. And just about everyone I know buys one and almost no one drinks it. <laughs> Do you just leave it, just buy it to support? So like the government, imagine the government selling, doing that in like an NFT form where they sell commemorative NFTs for certain people. And then there's certain exclusive rights that only come to NFT holders. Now, the thing that I like about the concept of the NFT, we can go back to the corporation thing uh, what i like about the concept of the nft is the the way the ownership transfer can pay some to the original uh, owner so i imagine if a let's just say everyone in a company when they're paid every year they get issued an nft which is a part of an issue in, it, it, it's a part of the governance of the entire corporation is in an NFT format. And so the user, of course, I mean the worker, they get part of this is compensation and that's, that's fine. And they get the, the, you know, they get equity in the company and they also, which the NFT is like the proof thereof. And 
it's part of their setup. But like, what happens if they just want to sell it? Either they don't care, or they just fall in hard times. They need to be. They need to sell it to make their bills. They sell it, sure, and then they get ten percent of the proceeds of every sale thereafter. So then the speculators start speculating on the shares. I mean, imagine if like every Tesla share that a early worker sold, they got ten percent on the sale price in perpetuity. Because then everyone's speculating the, the price of the shares goes way up, but the original person who had it still gets those royalties, so to speak, from the original, from being that first person in there. And so just because they were an early investor, just because they sold their share doesn't mean they sell everything involved with the success of the company they helped build. And so you could issue something sort of like that again, yeah, with the, the nice built-in NFT process you know, it's pretty good. And so in that way, because if you think about it, that's a, that's a little bit of a genius idea that I don't think the war, even the crypto world is understanding enough of like the value of the NFT original, like the, the resale fee type thing, because basically it encourages people to buy your NFT, whether you're an artist, whether you're a charity, whatever, it encourages the people to buy it at a low rate because they want to get it cheap so they can speculate on it later. So you get initial income, even though it's not very pricey. But then later, when if it because they're gambling on, they're speculating on it becoming huge one day. And when it does become huge, they're not the speculator benefits massively, but the original artist, the original charity, etc., benefits massively. So I think that that thing could be used with um, a local governance model as well. So I'm going to just send you a link quickly on this mm -hmm. very topic. Yeah. Just send it in the chat uh, and feel free to post it later. It, it, it's literally a former VP of Facebook mm -hmm. has literally decided we're going to do a VC style firm where we invest in human beings. Mm -hmm. So they've invested in uh, this YouTuber and as part of their contract with this YouTuber, it's like, well, if this YouTuber makes over a certain amount per year through business activities, they will basically get, I think, is it five or ten percent of net profits in perpetuity? But yeah. the YouTuber is getting something like two million dollars up front. I think, to be honest, so I'm personally mm -hmm. not the biggest fan of NFTs as they're currently used. But mm -hmm. NFTs, if they left an almost ghost trail of of prior ownership like mm -hmm. a perpetual bond in some way it's, it, it's mm -hmm. so similar what you've described to a perpetual bond but in mm -hmm. terms of that transfer sequence then you've got like that kind of okay this is uh you know you're not <laughs> it almost reduces the risk of selling to the point that it encourages selling which encourages liquidity and a mm -hmm. great part of what I feel drives economies is liquidity, which is flow, mm -hmm. the transfer of value and the ease of transfer of value and increasing the ways you can transfer value. So to me, an idea like that has a huge amount of appeal because it's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, what if you were the guy that sold the 10,000 Bitcoin for a slice of pizza? If this concept existed then, well, you aren't going to feel, you know, perpetually screwed over. I, I don't know how that guy feels, whoever that person is. But to me, that would be like, you know, if it were me selling 10,000 BTC and I lived like, what, 10, 12, 15 years into the future, I'd be like, hmm, wow. Right. Screwed. Uh, yeah. 
yeah. Or, you know, Vlad Zamfir, he sold like 15,000 Ethereum in like late 2016 or some yeah. stupid amount. And even he's like, you know, and to me, it's like if you've got that much talent and foresight to mm -hmm. see the world that far ahead, then maybe there is kind of something to you that's like, okay, this guy's an early adopter, but he's really, he's either lucky or really good at picking out, you know, early, you know, things that will trend. It's probably a bit of both. There's probably a mixture of things going on there, but maybe it's worth, you know, having a mechanism that rewards that ability because then you're kind of rewarding people who are extremely good or maybe lucky, but certainly there, there's an element of rewarding early adopters in innovation, which again perpetuates the trend towards explore, exploring early adoption and exploring a diversity of ideas and entrepreneurship. And I think that's a very powerful concept. Yeah, and I'll do a, I mean, this could go on million different rabbit holes, but on a slate deviation, I do like the concept of, um, and this is, I, can imagine this will be a thing in the future in the not very distant future and just a few years from now where every company out there pretty much offers rewards points to frequent customers for example and i would love to see a world where almost every company's rewards points are also uh, equity in the company and with dividends and also governance tokens so simply by if you go to get mm. your like your daily coffee at this one part and you contributed massively to the success of the as just a pure customer you're being paid back in or or like you go there with your friends all the time and like instead of getting a referral code for explicitly referring them doesn't matter if you refer them or not you're invested in the company's success so if you and your friends all go to the same pub over and over and you collect pub tokens that then as the pub does better business you get you become i guess wealthy off of that and you get to have a say in a, let's just say they want to change the menu and change your get your favorite item off of it you as someone who contributed so much to the pub success over the years get a governance vote in that decision and so that can be something that can be applied to any number of models but i do like as I've said before, money is not evil. People think money is evil. All money is is a tool for expressing value. And in the past, it's been in a very incomplete tool. And that's the evilness is the, is the poverty of the tool. But as the tool becomes better, I would like to see everyone as a voting stakeholder in everything, basically. Everyone in their world should be a voting stakeholder where they profit off of their world's profits they share in the decisions as well i mean quality rewards loyalty and i feel mm -hmm. loyalty should reward that kind of i i you know it is the idea of look if you've got a genuinely good service people are going to use that service if they're getting reward points that actually provide much better incentives than our traditional structures do they're going to engage more. They're going to attract more people towards that particular service or system. So to me, I think that's actually really interesting. I think that's a very novel take well, on, on rewards cards. Let's hit 
the final point on this about this is actually happening. I believe, and I've I'm not past the headlines very much, but I believe the mayor of Miami is issuing the, its own token, its own crypto token, and people who stake it will be paid Bitcoin rewards. That's what I've heard in a in a headline, basically. I've not looked too deep into that, but that doesn't matter. People are already thinking this way, right? There's already this where a a city government is saying, if you invest in our city, because they're not going to, they might give away tokens to like taxpayers or something. But imagine if you pay, you invest into the governance of the city, then you'll be paid back for it. And we're already getting to that in a governance level where a city government is at least entertaining this kind of a, a system. And imagine so far, governance has been a one-sided sort of black hole where the state says it says it does things for you it may or may not it sucks all your money out of it and you have no exit but now we have more exit choices than ever and we need more but more importantly it should be something that people are happy to contribute into people always use this idea of like invest in education invest in the future of our children things like that but in, in a very not in a very concrete, in, in a very sort of like sales hustle kind of a way where like they say it to make you feel good, but then you just pay money. And then if they don't educate your children, well, you don't get anything out of it. And if they do educate you other people's children, well, you kind of sort of benefit from a more educated society, but like not really, you don't get, you don't get anything back from your investment. But there's I, no direct reward. Yes. Direct incentivization as opposed to indirect reward. There's and actually that's what leads to disparity, which leads to discontent. Mm-hmm. And so if you just fix that and then you can see you can imagine systems that are encouraging people to sign up because they can offer greater rewards or they have a better argument of let's say like we have this vision for the future don't just vote for me and haha, I got you, but like invest and we'll get you rewards back. And you could get to say the people who lived here before they got a significant return on their investment because they paid into public services. They paid into governance. They did all this and the city's become so successful that more people have moved in city revenues gone up and that's gone passed back to the investors the people, and therefore come here, be a part of our society, because anything you invest in our society will be returned to you. We have a track record of success. So almost mm-hmm. feeding into that, because I, I love, I'm loving this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm actually an advocate for is tokenization of real estate and the mm-hmm. emergence of stock ex- of of stock exchanges or real estate stock exchanges where you know for me that idea was originally just buildings it's like you tokenize buildings and then you mm-hmm. trade the tokens you have micro shares like micro time shares trade them speculatively and yeah, that and hit, could potentially and to hit provide... a different level property deeds as nfts so if you have mm-hmm. to sell grandma's farm and it becomes gentrified at some point it still goes back to that there's still a portion that goes back to that initial person who sold Exactly. So I think there's room for all of these systems Mm. to exist and to kind of co-enhance each other and actually to build synergistically. Mm. I I actually really love, I actually really have loved listening to your ideas today because they're novel Mm -hmm. to me. 
And they kind of merge synergistically with a lot of the things that I feel in terms of giving mechanisms to empower people and to protect people and to make sure that people are enriched as a consequence of their decision of good decisions. Mm. You know, I think lifelong rewards for good investment choices should be a thing. Um, you know, and I think almost going back to what you said, you know, if you've tokenized a city mm -hmm. and that city's performing exceptionally well, for, for me, it, it's the idea that, you know, you've suddenly got loads of people that may want to suddenly start literally throwing huge amounts of money just to, for who may not live in those cities. You know, if mm -hmm. that option was available, you go, this city is performing so well. It's mm -hmm. giving out these amazing dividends. And I would love to just own just the tiniest, smallest part of this city. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how much you earn, you know, irrespective of uh, currency fluctuations and currency valuations in different countries, if you can just own a micro fraction, you know, you can tokenize as much as possible that, that the system essentially allows that. Mm -hmm. And by actually giving people all over the world the ability to almost speculate on successful societies, mm -hmm. you're not only then potentially empowering those people to better the lives for themselves, especially under almost a perpetual bond-type system, which you're proposing. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's not the right term, but it's close. Yeah. Um, you can give people who might be on like borderline near negligible incomes the ability mm -hmm. to have a lifelong means of sustainability. And that way you can increase um, wealth distribution or I, I think, you know, you, you can give people more chances and more opportunities who would never have had access to those opportunities in the first place. And that mm -hmm. way you can build more lives. And if those people are then suddenly getting good incomes, they can build better worlds for the people around them potentially. And I think that's powerful. That's liquidity, yeah. that's flow. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something people don't understand is liquidity and speculation. These are all very money terms and people have a very uh, distrustful relationship with money for good reason sometimes. But as I mentioned before, the concept of the technology of that, can you imagine if people, like if people could be invested in and I mean, let's take it, like if you take it down to the very almost gauche seeming lower levels of this where imagine a a person on the street who's struggling instead of just clicking click this cup for a donation if he mints you an nft in exchange for that and if let's just say some celebrity you know pays for his meal or something like that and gets an nft in return then puts it on his on social media and just says like i did this magnanimous thing and it goes viral and then everyone wants a piece of that NFT. They resell it for an insane markup, but then that all goes back to the person who got helped. And, and it, it's a very, I'm taking it to the, the most, you know, almost distasteful example of that because even in that way, the tokenization kind of makes, brings empowerment where, you know, you're selling that, that digital scarcity of that thing. And a lot of times, like people are very mistrustful of, investment and equity and things like that because they've been left out of the equation for so long and so when whenever you hear about invest in the city even if you don't live there people get very um apprehensive because they say 
some outside developer is going to buy up all our property, knock down all the historic houses and build something good, something more marketable up, even though they don't live here because they anticipate the city growing. And that that's a very different flavor. And it's also very specific to, to housing, but it's mm -hmm. a very different flavor than an outside investor sees our city on the up and up and is injecting a lot of capital into the city, just all of us. And all of us are benefiting from this investment it, instead of all of us are paying higher rents because the property values are going up. Like it's a very different equate from the investor standpoint. It's the exact same thing almost, but from hmm. the, the, the city standpoint, the beneficiaries, it's a very opposite thing. Hmm. The, the, basically the alignments hmm. are more aligned Yeah. to me in that setting. Everyone is aligned towards a win-win scenario more than in the old mm -hmm. style system where you know, some people win and a lot of people potentially lose. Yeah. Um, and you want to build, this is the key thing about governance structures in what we're talking about is you mm -hmm. want to build governance structures that encourage win-win scenarios for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. And that's kind of what we've been talking about for, you know, two, three hours total over the last few weeks in just this entire thing of a lot of people, when they talk about current systems, they're very conservative in suggesting changes or they're just very negative on the concept or just burn it all, start again. And this, I like this technologically evolutionary standpoint where you're just trying to make it work better for everyone and, you know, and give people more of a voice at every stage. And more importantly, make it make money, make sense, make dollars and cents and all of the rest. Because a lot of times you have this vote for me, I will make let everyone make more money versus the vote for me, I will provide social change programs and stuff in, for our community, but it's going to cost everyone a lot of money. It seems like those two things are always at odds. And because I don't trust trust the government much, I like to go on the first one of as many people keep as much of their money as possible. But imagine if those become the same thing, where it's like, vote for me, I will invest in the community and make this better off for everyone, and everyone makes money. Uh, is that is that the, the chime of wrap this thing up? <laughs> that is exactly the chime. That will be my wife mm -hmm. getting home from work. So well, Fantastic. Well, this has been a great chat. Uh, any parting words and then where can everyone find you and follow you um particle discord and telegram i'm on the handle joe sky come join my community i am gonna rush off and tend to my wife also mm -hmm. twitter at the greatest stock but really particle p-a-r-t-i-c-l telecom telegram and discord i'm off sorry joe see you in a bit all man. right bye-bye everyone thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode and donate to support the show by going to my Cointree page. That's cointr.ee slash the desert links and leave a message with your donation. Check out the show's sponsors. Live on crypto with BitRefill. Buy absolutely anything with crypto with ShopinBit. Avoid content censorship with Odyssey. Protect your privacy online with NordVPN. Get paid to search with PreSearch. All links are in the show notes.